Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website Stories from Palestine. Info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm Roberto Mazza, your host, and today, for the fifth and final installment of the series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I, we're going to discuss the neglected and forgotten history, or we'll better say, micro-history, of Leah Tenenbaum. Also labeled as the Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, Leah Tenenbaum's life from the early 20th century in Jerusalem through Egypt and then late in Canada. Her life is a fascinating story that intertwines with the lives of some of the characters we've seen throughout the series, like Jamal Pasha, but also of others who lived in Jerusalem under the British. But Leah left an indelible mark in the city's history. In fact, if you're wandering around, Jerusalem, you likely bump into a villa known as Villa Lea, which was then built by her husband, Carius, and dedicated to her, the beauty queen of Jerusalem. The villa has remained so her name. We know very little about them, and today we will see how their lives spun through the war and eventually after the war. Before delving into the stories of uh, the Atenambo, Apacarius and others, 
I just want to acknowledge the amazing work of research conducted by Norbert Schwachter. Dr. Norbert Schwachter is a long-time resident of Nazareth and uh, he provided myself and many other scholars with great and valuable information about many of the historical agents that operated in Palestine during the period of World War I. For many years, we shared our common interest about Lea Tenenbaum. Finally, after he was able to find all of the information related to her, her husbands and children, we were able to put together an essay which we will be eventually published by the Jerusalem Quarterly in the future. May 31st, 1915. The month is ending, but not the more or less naughty comments being made about the projected wedding of Jamal Pasha with a beautiful Jewish lady named Leah Tenenbaum. The news seemed so unlikely to me that I gave it the least importance, but it persists and there is no one in the city who is not commenting on it. From the entry of Consul Conde de Bayobar and his diary, which we discussed in the previous episodes of the series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I. Everybody in Jerusalem knew Leah. We will see later on that also from the diaries and memoirs of his Anturjuman and Wasif Juaria, her name has been written down. Leah, also called Lisa Tannenbaum, was born on September 1st, 1899. She was the eldest child of Israel Mordechai Tannenbaum. Now, the Tannenbaum's presence in Jerusalem dates likely the early 1860s, when Rabbi Avraham Yitzhak Tannenbaum, a kosher butcher from Stropkov, in present-day Slovakia, immigrated to Palestine. Abraham lived in Jerusalem, where he married and had two children, and was registered as a Talmud student. Abraham's son, Rabbi el Hanan, was a founder of an Alat Itzak quarter, and also co-owner with his brother-in-law of the Sassoon Brothers Printing Office. el Hanan's son, Israel, was Leah's father. Sometimes described as a, an Orthodox Jew from Mea Sharim, Israel Tannenbaum was in fact a traditional Jew holding some liberal ideas. He was a real estate agent, and he arranged the purchase of a Chatzuhat Beit, a Jewish colony on the outskirts of Jaffa, that can be seen as paving the way for the establishment of Tel Aviv later on as a Jewish city. Was he a Zionist? We don't know. Israel Tannenbaum was social with his Arab neighbors and certainly spoke some Arabic. One of his best friends was in fact Arif al-Arif, the famous Palestinian historian and nationalist and politician. So, obviously, he had very good relations with his neighbors and he also had developed excellent relationships with the Ottoman authorities. And perhaps this may explain why the British when they conquered Jerusalem in 1917, exiled him and his whole family to Egypt, which was often, probably better say, only a punishment reserved mainly for Germans of Jerusalem and Jaffa. One wonders if the rumors of a relationship between Jamal Pasha and Leah 
reach British ears. During World War I, Leah became a sort of a local celebrity, as a result of a persistent gossip insinuating a romantic relationship between her and Jamal Pasha, the commander of the 4th Ottoman army and wartime governor of Greater Syria. Often described as a handsome man and a womanizer, Jamal Pasha was a highly controversial figure, partly because of his cruelty, but also because of his visibility and unpredictability. Leah was well known as a beauty queen of Jerusalem. In fact, local Arab Jerusalemites called her Bint Allah, somehow, somewhat like uh, a diva. She was very active in the Red Crescent, and we don't know how, but she became Jamal Pasha's mistress. Rumors about her spread around Jerusalem. But as I said earlier, she was already known as a beauty. So obviously her name was already a household name amongst many in Jerusalem. We really don't know much about how they came to know each other, whether Jamal Pasha was attracted by the Europeaness of this uh, Jewish woman, was the beauty of her, whether someone introduced her to him. We also know from some sources that she worked together with uh, Albert Antebi, the famous uh, local Ottoman Jew, whose story tells us that often it was defined as some sort of a uh, the leader of a Jewish community in, in Jerusalem. And he was also very close to Jamal Pasha. Uh, if you want to go back to the episode where I discussed the attempted sale of the Western Wall by Jamal Pasha to the Zionists, you will hear about the key role played by Albert Antebi. So it's possible that he played the role uh, channeling Leah uh, towards Jamal Pasha. In any case, in May 1915, as we heard a couple of times from Bayobar and other sources, rumors spread in Jerusalem that Jamal was about to marry her. This was, and certainly sounded unlikely and unbelievable to most ears. Yet the rumor did not stop. A local conscript, Isan Turjban, was critical of the well-known relationship between the two as he believed Jamal was not worthy of a leadership role. Zantor Rujman, remember, was a, uh, a local Jerusalemite who served in the Ottoman army, and we talked about him with uh, Abigail Jacobson and Salim Tamari. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that he was very critical of how particularly Turkish officers treated locals. And in his diary, there are several entries dedicated to uh, women particularly those who fell into the drama of prostitution. He was concerned that these women would not be able to recover their honor and therefore they would live as outcasted in, in the Jerusalemite society after the war. Going back to Bayobar, the Spanish consul, in his diary on September 7, 1915, He wrote that Jamal Pasha had asked him, Do you know that I have married an Austrian Jewess? Bayobar added that all of Syria already knew this news 
and that they and that even the French newspaper Le Temps had reported it. I never really found any news about it, and I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and also the question of Austrian Jews, it's very interesting that suggests that obviously Jamal Pasha looked at Lea Tenenbaum as a European, despite she was born in Jerusalem and family had been there for quite some time, that they were Ottoman citizens. But still, there was this attractiveness to be with a European woman. Along with Lea, other European Jewish female activists in the Red Crescent Society became lovers of Ottoman officers in the army headquarters. And I think this must be seen as an attempt and an effort by the Ashkenazi Jewish community to find favor and gain influence with the Ottoman establishment to make sure that they will protect themselves and their families. Or it was a way to escape poverty and guarantee themselves and their families the possibility to survive the war. Now, according to some sources, women of all, religious, of all religions fell into prostitution during the war. But it's certainly true that many were Jewish. So were the brothels. There can be no doubt, however, that some of these young women may have been genuinely attracted by the officers and enjoyed their company too. While Jamal Pasha disappeared from the stage after the war, he died in 1922, was murdered in connection with the Armenian genocide, Leah remained for a short while at the center of Jerusalem gossip, but for a completely different story. With the end of the war, the gossip faded away. Yet Leah Tenenbaum remained at the center of social life of British Jerusalem. Her life was a turbulent as the her life was as turbulent as the early British rule of Palestine, and became intertwined with the story of Nasib Abkharius an important lawyer in Jerusalem who eventually married her and with the Villa Lea, a beautiful residence that Apkarius built in 1934 to celebrate her, they became a glamorous couple in Jerusalem, at least for a short while. I want to just make a few disclaimers here because obviously when you talk about the life of individuals, you always have to remind people that you can only make educated guesses. You can only speculate up to a point. Otherwise, you're going to end up making up stories. Sources tell us a few things about the private life, but not much. So, while I'm recounting the lives of Leah and Nasib, I also want to give attention to the afterlife of them, Villa Leah, which is... Uh, a more tangible sign of their relationship. This is an example of what we may call a history of Jerusalem through its houses. Perhaps a great topic for another podcast in the future. The larger significance of the stories narrated in this podcast is that the history of the city is intrinsically connected with the agency of its inhabitants. And the history of city Without its people, it is an incomplete one. Jerusalem is not just about buildings and historical events, but it's about the people living there. In addition, 
This is largely a story about the way that Palestine has been a setting for dramas in which the main actors are not Palestinians. Jamal Pasha, Abkarius, Abdel Wahab in Egypt and others. There's the only one born in Jerusalem and she pegs her fortune to men who have come to Palestine from elsewhere, like Abkarius. So before delving into the stories, it is important to highlight a few questions. In this podcast, I'm not suggesting any unsavory views of women when discussing Leah, who may come across as a bit of a seductress and a social climber, someone who used men to her own advantage. For one thing, we know so little about her relationships. Certainly, Jamal Pasha had quite a bit more power in that situation. Who knows to what degree she was a willing partner in that romance. Abkarius comes across as a as the devoted husband, building a villa for his wife, who then packs up and leaves him. But perhaps she had good reasons to want to get out of that relationship in Jerusalem. When we're going to look at her life in Egypt, it seems like Abdel Wahab traded her in uh, for a newer model, Jarmila, who was probably 17 or 18 younger than Leah. We cannot fully delve into the question of what life might have been like for a divorcee and a widow with three children, uprooted or unrooted perhaps, in a period of massive upheaval for Jerusalem, Palestine, European and Middle Eastern Jewry. But it is important to remember all of these points while listening to the stories of Leah, Abkarius and the extras surrounding them. After the war, in 1921, Leah married a British officer, Captain Israel Jaffe. Jaffe was part of the British Indian Army, and he was an important officer in the Jewish Legion. Jaffe was born in 1888 in Belfast to a family of Jewish immigrants from Russia. Before the war, he had moved to Rhodesia, nowadays Zimbabwe, where he worked as a farmer in old Mutare, Umtali, in Manikaland, near the border with Mozambique. Rumor had it that he was deeply in love with Leah, but she did not reciprocate this love. Leah and Jaffe had a son, Leon, also known as Len Jaffe, who was born in December 1922 in Lausanne, Switzerland. It is unclear why they moved there. In 1925, it seems that Jaffe left Jerusalem for the United States without Leah or Leon, before returning to his small holding in Africa. We don't know much about their relationship. We may speculate that Leah married, because it, the rumors that were circulating about her and Jamal Pasha, and so that would have been a way of uh, somehow reestablishing her honor and uh, also reestablishing a possibility to live in Jerusalem. We don't also know much about uh, what happened to the family after they were exiled for a short period um, in Egypt. We know that they came back to Jerusalem, but we don't know much about that uh, interlude period. So now, as a divorcee with a child, Leah likely faced difficulties in Jerusalem. And this may explain Israel Mordechai Tenenbaum's, his father, 
and this may explain Israel Mordecai's Tannenbaum's father, willingness to accept a marriage proposal from Nasib Abkarius Bey, a lawyer with whom he had established good business relations. The Abkarius family ties to Jerusalem were both older and more recent than the Tannenbaum's. Agob Abkarian Nasib, grandfather, was born in 1781 in Akshir, a city between Afion and Konya, around the Akshir Lake in modern-day Turkey. As a young man, Agob entered the Armenian St. James Monastery in Jerusalem, and in 1818 he was ordained a bishop in the province of Armenia. However, Agob, along with two other bishops, renounced his priesthood became Protestant and moved to Beirut, probably in the early 1820s. Shortly after he arrived in Lebanon, Agop married Awa. Awa Massad was a Maronite from Beirut, and they went on to have seven children. Johannes, born in 1832, went to a Greek Orthodox school where he learned Greek, Armenian, Turkish, and Arabic. And at the age of 13, he was sent to a diplomatic school in Britain for two years. Shortly before the 1860 uh, atrocities that unfolded in Lebanon, Johannes and his family moved to Egypt. Eventually, Johannes returned to Beirut and became the dragoman, the interpreter and chancellor of the British consulate. Of the British consulate. He also joined his older sister, Mariam, and brother, Iskandar in working with the American missionaries. It is unclear whether Johannes' first wife, Zubeida, died in Egypt or in Lebanon, but in 1871, he was married a second time to Afifa Kanawati. Johannes and Afifa had eight children, the third of which was Nasib. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So we can see here the sort of an old story connecting the family of Abacarius to Jerusalem, but also the, the recent arrival as uh, he came from Egypt after World War I. According to the Registro dei Morti, essentially the register of the dead of the Franciscan parish of Jerusalem, Nassib was born in Beirut on May 1st, 1875. He and his brother, Amin, studied pharmacology at the Syrian Protestant College, then to become the American University of Beirut, and Nassib went on to study law in Paris. And it seems then in 1898 he went to Egypt. There he joined British troops as a pharmacist and participated in the battles for the recapture of Sudan. He was appointed as a judge in Khartoum by the British and received the title of B, a title that he cared much about, from King Fuad of Egypt. After World War I, the British sent him to Palestine to oversee the establishing of the mandate's legal system. Eventually, he left his government position and embarked on an independent career as a private lawyer. Out of an office located at 10 St. Paul Street, which today has been renamed as Shiftei Israel Street in Jerusalem, he specialized in criminal trials and property. Working in the same office as David Goitain, who came to Palestine from England in 1924 and 19 and in 1953 would serve on the Israeli Supreme Court. Abkarius was multi-talented, successful lawyer, he was fluent in Arabic, English, French, Hebrew, and knew some German too. And sources describe him also as a good violinist. So Abkarius' status and qualities, in addition to Leah's vulnerable state, likely helped Israel Mordecai overlook the couple's difference in age, Nasib was 54 and Leah was 30, and also religion. The mother of their different religions was overcome through marriage by civil ceremony in Paris. There was no civil marriage in Palestine. In fact, there is no civil marriage uh, in Israel today still. Probably in 1929. While Christian-Jewish intermarriage may have raised some eyebrows in Jerusalem, given an a cop's original conversion from Catholicism to Protestantism and Leah's previous relations with men outside their community, it may not have presented a significant issue for the couple. In other words, the context kind of helped them to overcome the problems related to religious intermarriage. But once again, I want to stress the fact that we don't know much about uh, the details of what they may have experienced, what might have been the private and public reaction of people around them. Particularly considering that by 1921, Nasib was a, a fairly, you know, well-recognized figure uh, around Jerusalem and Palestine because of his role as a lawyer um, and also as a role within the British administration. Soon after the marriage, Leah gave birth to two girls, Tina in 1929 and Ruth in 1930. 
Nassib and Leah spent time in Jerusalem, but also in Abu Ghosh, where they had a summer residence, probably shared with Nassib's brother, Michel. In Jerusalem, on May 1st, 1934, the Nassib's grandiose new resident, Villa Lea, was eventually inaugurated. Villa Lea is located today on Ben Maimon Avenue, uh, number 6, at the entrance of Jerusalem Rehavia Quarter. And for those of you very familiar with the area, it's essentially very close to um, the uh, American consulate and the cemetery uh, in front of that mamilla. This villa was intended to be the expression of Nasib's adoration of Leah, and the villa was for Leah. The architects Dan and Raphael Bendor designed it in the international style very popular back then, the so-called by house of a period with art deco gates and windows. The land had been purchased from the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem and was registered in Leah's name. Next to this house, Abkarius built another house, also registered in Leah's name, to be used as a rental in order to supplement the, the income and essentially pay for expenses with the income of that rent. We could ask some questions about why did Nasib choose to build in this neighborhood, given its demographic composition? Um, why putting down the name of Leah as the owner of, of a villa? We don't know much about all of these details. Uh, we also don't know much about the details of a land sale by the Greek Orthodox Church to Abkarius. So this all remains unanswered. When in 1936, Italy's occupation of Ethiopia drove Emperor Haile Selassie into exile, he stopped in Jerusalem on his way to Geneva, and Abkarius Bey invited His Majesty to stay in his modern house. The Negus accepted the, the invitation, bestowing on Abkarius Bey the enormous honor of hosting an emperor. Haile Selassie left Jerusalem after two weeks, but the imperial family stayed on at Villalea for months. Despite the prestige that such guests must have conferred on Apacarius Bay and Leah in Jerusalem society. By April 1937, the furniture of Villa Leah had been boxed up and shipped to Cairo. It seems that Leah had grown tired of Nasib's adoration and the splendid villa in Jerusalem and had left with her three children to reunite with her sister Rebecca, Bella. The immediate impetus for Leah's departure was likely Bella's marriage to Edward Thomas Guy, British officer serving in Egypt, which took place in Cairo in 1937. So the speculation is that she took advantage of the marriage of her sister to finally leave Jerusalem and Abkarius Bay. In Cairo, Leah found a new partner, the rich and influential Egyptian officer, Major General Hassan Abdel Wahad, a close friend of King Farouk, and after 1952, close to Mohammed Naguib and Gamal Nassar. In 1938, quite interestingly, and we don't know much about this, uh, other than the details that the furniture from Villa Lea, originally sent to Egypt, were now sent back to Jerusalem. And in 1939, she sold the house next to Villa Lea. Though the only records that survive suggest that she had some uh, troubles receiving the money from the sale. 
We also know that while in Egypt, Leon, Leah's son with uh, the first husband, Jaffe, attended the flight school in Egypt in 1940 and became a pilot. In his late 20s, after the establishment of the State of Israel, Leon reportedly flew for El Al, the Israeli National Airlines. In 1950, at 21, Leah and Nasib's daughter Ruth married Alexander Iskandar Nasif in Egypt. They eventually immigrated to France and Canada, where Alexander changed the family name. Leah lived with uh, Abdel Wahad, and her daughter Tina remembers that the couple were married, though there are no records of this. And it's plausible that they never got married. We don't even um, have records of, their, of her divorce uh, with uh, Abkarius. Indeed, until Abkarius' death in 1946, Leah would have been unable to marry. Until Abkarius' death in 1946, Leah would have been unable to marry. And the speculation is that she never married Abdel Wahab. Besides, he was already married to several women. Uh, and, and eventually, by 1952, we know that uh, Abdel Wahab took another wife, Jarmila Kriswa, uh, who was a very famous singer back then, and definitely younger than Leah. And in 1952, Leah married Tassos Ermo, a Greek living in Egypt. The wedding, for which we have records, took place in London. Uh, the reason why it took place in London is that the marriage between Jews and Christians uh, was not possible in Egypt. And that coincided with Leon's marriage. Leah now went by Lisa Ermo, and Bella served as witness for the wedding. Leon and his wife moved to South Africa, while Leah and Bella returned to Egypt. In 1959, Leah and Bella left Egypt for Canada, where they were joined by their adult children and Leon's six-year-old son, Peter. Leah died in 1967, and while I have the details of his burial location and the new name that she adopted, I believe that in order to respect the family and also to respect Leah and her life, I'd rather not divulge this information on the podcast. Leah lived a very intriguing life, but a very difficult one, a life that was marked by World War I where she had to make choices. Well, possibly she fell in love with Jamal Pasha, or possibly she was forced to be her mistress. We don't know. But all that snowballed into what happened next. Back then, it would have been absolutely impossible to get clean after you know, being named uh, as part of a gossip as the mistress of the Ottoman ruler. Let me go back to the story. While Leah and Bella lived in Egypt, their parents and the brothers remained in Jerusalem, where they lived not far away from Abkarius Bay and seemingly maintained a close relationship with him. For example, for example, when Nazi Germany occupied Czechoslovakia in 1938, the Tannenbaum sought to exchange their Czechoslovakian citizenship, which they had received as former Austrian citizens, for Palestinian citizenship, a process they undertook with Babkarius' legal assistance. 
the citizenship application give their address as Karm Aruban, a section of uh, Talbia, just across the street from Villa Lea. Actually, that's the place where the Israeli Prime Minister residence is located today. Abkarius Bey apparently kept the empty villa as his official address, but went to live in the fashionable Hotel Daruti, today an office building of the Jerusalem municipality, not far away from his law office. He developed a close relationship with its owner, Frida Daruti, who would eventually care for him personally when he suffered from illness at the end of his days. Again, we can't speculate about their relationship, but certainly she became very close to him. After 1940, Abkarius spent an enormous amount of money to build a huge terraced orchard near the Abkarius residence in Abu Ghosh. In 1946, Abkarius Bey, then giving his address as Upper Baka, applied for Palestinian citizenship. Until then, in fact, he had an Egyptian passport. At that point, Abkarius was gravely ill, and the mandate immigration officials were instructed to present a naturalization certificate to Abkarius, who, one official wrote, understand he is dying without delay. Officials were instructed not to include Leah and to forego consulting with a security check by the police, intelligence and criminal investigation branch. The file contains several errors, Abkarius' date and place of birth, uh, for instance, uh, this was done obviously in a rush in order to grant the wishes of a man that served the British for decades in Palestine. On September 6, on September 7, 1946, Nasiba died. An obituary in the Palestine Post recounted his career and listed his accomplishment. He was a commander of the Holy Sepulchre. Chevalier of the Crown of Italy, an officer of the Imperial Order of Mejdieh, and held the Egyptian Nile Medal with seven clasps and the English Medal of the Sudan Campaign. Goiten, his former uh, partner, described him as a head and shoulder above all other advocates practicing in Palestine until his retirement, and also very popular with all the judges, and perhaps his greatest asset was the skill with which he could persuade judges of the soundness of an argument that might otherwise have appeared unarguable. After a funeral service at the Latin Patriarchate Church inside the new gate of the old city, Abkarius was buried in the Cimitero Nuovo of the Franciscan, the new cemetery on Mount Zion, which was completely destroyed during the 1948 war as it divided the Arab Legion and the Israeli army. I found interesting that Nasib Abkarius essentially was a Protestant all his life, but died as a Catholic, and even a knight of the Holy Sepulchre, which suggests that his social status and wealth shielded him from criticism or ostracism, despite the fact that he moved across religious backgrounds. According to Cesar Abkarius, Michel's grandson, after Nasib's death, Michel went to live in Villalea. However, after the departure of Michel, possibly following the War of 1948, the assets of the in Jerusalem and Abu Ghosh were put under the uh, rule of the guardian of abandoned properties. As the property was abandoned 
and I couldn't find any details about that, the famous professor of medicine Hermann Zondek and Jerusalem first Jewish mayor Daniel Oster both lived in Villa Lea at some point. Later he became the residence of Moshe Dayan when he was the military commander of Jerusalem in 1948. His daughter Yael described the wonderful building but she had no knowledge of Apcarius Bay nor Lea to whom the villa was dedicated. Today Villa Lea is divided into four independent apartments. The late Dr. Joseph Burke, who for many years was Israel Minister of Interior, purchased the apartment at the entrance. His daughter, Dr. Ada Burke, and her husband, Professor Menachem Ben Sassoon, lived there. Villa Lea is occasionally open to visitors, and plaque offers very few details about its history, and certainly very little about Abkarius and Lea. History may have forgotten both Lea and Abkarius, while Villa Lea is a reminder of their intricated lives and legacy. Let me go back to the beginning. In 2016, Sariti Shai Levi published the bestseller book, The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, which has since been turned into, a, as I said at the very beginning, a television series by Netflix. Whether the beauty queen was Rochalim or Luna, these fictional characters have given Jerusalem a different aura, one not anointed by sanctity. While Ishai Levi's book is not necessarily about Leah, there are some interesting connections between the various characters of the novel and the real-life characters of our story. Whether intentional or not, it is possible that crumbs of Leah's story were picked up and came to shape the characters of the beauty queen of Jerusalem. The story is the story of Jerusalem, one that looks holy, intransigent, with fixed borders and monolithic, but the reality is more complex, made of fluid and porous borders, more inclusive and more indulgent. With this, the five-episode series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I ends. I hope you enjoyed the series. And if you're interested in more details about all of the various characters and facts that I discussed throughout the series, please get in touch. And get ready for the last episode of Season 3. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>